This is a post-Christian podcast. We are the sacred collective. All are respected. All are heard. All are welcomed. Join us. Welcome to the Sacred Collective. Um, I'm Brian. Um, I'm doing a solo interview today because um, we're still in not quarantine here in Minnesota or in, the, in America, but uh, it's difficult um, when we're doing this because we're doing this in the middle of the afternoon. Um, I, uh, Sacred Collective put up uh, la- Thursday, so about a week ago, we put up um, like a six-minute little little um minisode i guess to talk about um george floyd talk about the civil unrest in america um and i think it's caught the world by storm um and it's pretty intense and crazy that this happened in my backyard in the backyard of where sacred sacred collective meets um so we decided a sacred collective to we thought it would be appropriate to talk not just about George Floyd but talk about everything from um white privilege to talk about um George Floyd to talk about police brutality um talk about all that and we would be remiss and pretty much just dumb if we just talked as a bunch of white people um cuz that is the epitome of white privilege <laughs> if white people just ended up talking. Um, so today our guest is a returning guest and longtime best bud of mine, uh, Reverend Dr. Scotty Williams. Say hello. Hey, Brian. Hey, everybody. Uh, yes. And so Scotty agreed to um, do this interview and not just from um, a black perspective, but from a pastoral perspective, too, as he's. If you've listened to a previous episode last fall, he was on, um, and he's in St. Gallen, which is in eastern Switzerland, um, and he's a, a, a senior minister, lead minister, whatever you want to say, at All Souls Protestant Church. So check check him out first um, online, see what their church is doing. It's really good stuff in the community. So, Scotty, I'm going to just jump in, and um, we'll just have this back-and-forth conversation for the next hour or so. Cool? Yeah, definitely. One one thing is, you know, I'm going to answer not just as a black man, not just as a pastor, but also as a Minnesotan. Um, though I'm originally from Louisiana, I spent my teens, I went to college or high school, college seminary in Minnesota. And so I'm answering this as a as a proud Minnesotan um, and I might get emotional at certain points because for me, Minneapolis, just like New Orleans, Minneapolis is my home. And so, yeah, I'm going to answer also as a Minnesotan and yeah, and much love to our city. Yeah. Um, I would concur with that. Um, I've been born and raised in the twin cities, mostly St. Paul, but if anybody knows the geography and topography of the twin cities, Minneapolis and St. Paul are just separated by a river. That's it. Um, and so when you say you're from the Twin Cities, you know, if you say you're from St. Paul, I mean, it's kind of intertwined. 
Um, I, I've spent many years of my life in Minneapolis. I went to college in Minneapolis. Some of my really good friends live in Minneapolis. Um, and unfortunately where that murder happened, um, by, for, um, that happened to George Floyd, I've been in that intersection numerous times. So, uh, jumping right in. So, um, when you heard Scotty that this happened, um, George Floyd, another unarmed black man, that got murdered by the police in America. What kind of visceral gut reaction did you feel? I had three reactions. Um, at that time, it's quite interesting. I was bird watching with my son um, earlier, and while he was um, he was taking a nap, he fell asleep while we were bird watching. Um, I get this message on my phone about. Um, Christian Cooper in New York, um, how he was bird watching in Central Park. And then this lady, you know, calls the police, says an African-American man's threatening my life. And um, and that just, you know, I was like, whoa, this is a weird coincidence. Bird watching with my son and then, you know, in peace and no worries here. And then this is happening in New York at the same time or almost the same time. And so then um, we make our way home. And right when I get through the door, my phone goes off again. And it's about George Floyd and Minneapolis. And then I had three, three, three emotions at the same time. Um, there was surprise. You know, like, oh, no, you know, not again because of Philando Castile um, had happened, you know, and, I, and, that, and so I was just, you know, the sense of surprise. Then there was a sense of, of fear, um, you know, like just fear for a lot of my friends there, fear for you, Brian, your, your, your family, fear for people I, I love, fear for the city. And then um, a sense of just not being surprised that this has happened again, because this has been kind of a reality that I've seen since I was a kid, you know, like in Louisiana, um, when I was a kid, there were, you know, we had, you know, it, um, people still got lynched when I was a kid, you know, two lynchings happened, um, near the, near my elementary school in Shreveport. So, um, it was the, it was the same feelings, surprise, scared, you know, fear, and then just not surprised at the same time. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I've, when I heard it happen, cause we got back that Sunday night from going out of town to visit Amanda, my wife's family in South Dakota, we had a wonderful time. And actually the, the day he got murdered was actually a holiday here in America, Memorial day. And it kind of just started trickling in where it, cause it happened at eight at night. So when I woke up that next Tuesday, uh, to go to work, it was still kind of fresh and still kind of new. And then by the end of the day, you know, it was all over the news that this guy got murdered. And, um, and, and the reason he got murdered was over an alleged, alleged, uh, fake $20 bill, uh, that he was trying to use. And now the news has come out and said that it wasn't a fake $20 bill, that it was real. Ay, ay, ay. Um, so why, why do you think, and I know this might be a loaded and long question, 
Um, why do you think through all, everything that this country has been through in the last 400 years, 300 years, whatever, then that frame, why do you think America itself as a nation has never dealt with the race problem that we've had? I would say because we have a special kind of racism. I mean, and our racism or the system that is, you know, bred our form of racism um, was in response to the failures of the racial system that Europe had. Um, you know, America is, is a fairly young nation. Um, and, you know, and, and when, when she was formed, when our country came into being, it was, you know, it was surrounded by all of these empires of Europe. And, you know, what, what happened with these empires is they were experiencing a lot of slave revolts in their colonies, um, Haiti being one of them, um, the St. Thomas Revolt. And, and so, you know, as, you know, they're having this problem in, in the, um, the European colonies, the folks in our country, you know, many some um, the people crafted our system, uh, you know, our racial system, they were taking notes and they were tweaking our system. You know, I say that, you know, American racism is like the Borg from Star Trek in that you shoot them, you shoot it, but it adapts. And our system was designed to adapt, you know, um, because also when you think about, you know, black people weren't the only people who were discriminated against, uh, you know, and people of color weren't the only people who were discriminated against and faced American racism and lived under it. Um, in the early 20th century, um, as European immigrants were coming in, I mean, I'm not saying that their oppression is on the same level as blacks going through slavery, but um, there was a point when people from Ireland and Italy, um, you know, also Catholic Europeans, um, Eastern Europeans, they were not considered white. They were considered something else. And so they had their, they were um, put in, in certain areas. They were oppressed. Um, my grandmother grew up alongside Hungarians who weren't considered white. And, you know, those groups were kept down. Um, and then later, and then later on, you know, World War II happens, and all of the oppressed groups in America, even during World War I, but during those wars, they wanted to prove themselves. They wanted to show that they were worthy of being Americans and, and do something for the country. And they all went and fought together. And a sense of camaraderie formed amongst them. And there was a fear of the leading group, you know, Anglo or WASP, as we say, white Anglo-Saxon Protestants, um, there was a fear in, in this white establishment um, of blacks and European immigrants um, and other disenfran and disenfranchised um, peoples of color, uh, other, other peoples of color. There was a fear of them coming together. And so there are books about this, that that is the point when, you know, again, our system adapts. And it says to these disenfranchised European groups, hey, you guys are white now. You're from Europe, you're white, you know, and it gave them privileges and, you know, practices of redlining and things like that. So 
in short, we have a system that's built to adapt. Mm-hmm. And it's a pretty powerful system, bro, because even with a, the civil rights movement, with voices like Dr. King and Malcolm X, and even with great leaders such as um, Fannie Lou Hamer and you know Mary McLeod Bethune, Frederick Douglass, even with these powerful prophetic voices, our system still withstands the blow that they dealt to it. So it's it's like the Borg. It it's designed to adapt. And until we acknowledge that reality and and, and you know we're just going to be in the same vicious cycle over and 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 over again, man. Thank you. Um that was very poignant. Um I'm sure a lot of people um understand what racism is in general. Um, obviously it's in a simple term, it's, you know, being prejudiced, hateful towards someone of a different race than your own. Um, but can you briefly just give us like a rundown? Um, what, cause there's a phrase that's going around in the media now of called, um, systemic racism. Can you give you know, our listeners five, 10 minute kind of rundown of what systemic racism is? Well, systemic racism is, you know, so when, when I look at racism, I, you know, the image I use is it's like a, a tree and, you know, and it has different fruit, you know, or different, and these fruits are different expressions. And so you have, you know, covert racism, which is, well, I, I hope my English is good with this. Um, covert racism, which is like, um, which is you know under the table sort of stuff, and then you have overt racism, which is like in your face, you know. And systematic racism is 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 the fruit of that, and it has covert and overt elements, you know. Um, an overt element would be, you know, like you know Jim Crow style segregation stuff you know where it's in the law blacks can't vote it's in the law interracial marriage can't happen you know it, it's you know so you know it's been systematized in that way but then you know what we're dealing with in the US is this under the table covert racism um which is in you know which is in the system and a lot of people can't recognize it because our overt systematic expression has been so strong and, and, and it was so in your face and that's gone. And people then say, well, um, you know, what do you mean? You know, systematic racism, you know, the Jim Crow stuff is gone. You know, those policies are, are, are gone. You know, black people, they can move anywhere they want to move. They can buy a house. They can interracially marry. They can do this. They can do this, this, this. But what they don't realize is, is that there are policies, um, within our system, you know, legal system, you know, especially the legal system, there are policies that, um, you know, um, if, 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 if you, if you don't look hard enough, you won't see. Um, and unless, and if you're a person of color, you know, you will experience them. You, you will feel them. One example is, um, redlining this, Mm -hmm. this practice redlining from, from, from the surface, when it was done, you know, and, and, and I'll give the definition of redlining. It was, um, 
the government had, you know, if I'm wrong, correct me, Brian, because you know what it is. But the government wanted to give money to certain neighborhoods, cer- certain areas in, in a city. The government had money. And so um, you would have these groups that would um, mark areas and mark the areas that were um, majority black or, or areas of color, um, mark them in red. And these would be the areas that wouldn't get the funding and the areas that weren't lined in red. These were the ones that would get the government funding. And, and these were majority white areas. Absolutely. And, and again, you know, it's, it's covert because if you're looking at it from the surface, you're just going to see it simply as, well, it's, it's zoning, you know, and then you you also, you're, um, when you look at these poor areas of color, um, you know, like, like, when, when I've seen people who think that redlining is is an okay practice, they will say, "Well, these poor er- these areas of color, they're poor. They're not improving. People aren't pulling themselves up by their bootstraps and doing something about it. So, um, you know, why should money go to improve improve their areas? You know, um, there's that narrative. But what they don't realize is is that there's a history behind it. You know, there's a systematic. You know, the system is working against those areas um, and keeping them down. So, so yeah, so I hope that gives some definition of it, systematic racism. Yeah. Systemic. systemic, Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. And I would say another blatantly, well, two blatantly um, obvious things of systemic racism is I remember being in seminary class. You and I went to the same seminary Mm -hmm. and we were in a Christian social ethics class. I don't know if you were in that class with me, but I know you had to take it. And I remember we were talking um, specifically in that class about racism. And it was funny because literally everyone in the class, including the teacher, was white. So, you know, whatever. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, But we were and somehow we were talking about racism and everyone was trying to give, you know, like the you know, like an opinion or something on it. And then I brought up since, and I'm one of very few people that I knew at the seminary that were at, that was actually from here in the twin cities that grew up here my whole life. And I said this, and I said, um, every major freeway highway in America is through poor people of color neighborhoods. Yep. There's not a single, there's not a single city that's like that. And they were like, what do you mean? I said, for instance, Interstate 94. And to let our listeners know who don't know what that is, Interstate 94 is the main freeway that connects St. Paul to Minneapolis. It goes downtown to downtown. You can get there in, I don't know, would you say, Scotty, like 10 minutes about? Oh, yeah, yeah, definitely. From downtown man. to downtown. Um, yeah. Obviously in rush hour longer. However, in St. Paul, to make room for I-94 and I-94, if I'm not mistaken, was completed in the 60s. And we all know what happened in America in the 60s. -hmm. But the neighborhood that they demolished was the Rondo neighborhood. And I would ask any of our listeners to just Google or look up the Rondo neighborhood. The Rondo neighborhood was probably one of the most vibrant, beautiful um, black communities in the nation at the time. Um, You had... Anywhere from like mechanics and, and, you know, kind of, you know, what they would laborer jobs to, you know, musicians, um, artists, teachers, professors. And 
the literally the city came in with zoning laws and other redlining and other things. And they said, um, hey, you know what? We're going to the government came in there, the national and the federal. And they were like, we're going to build this interstate there. And when you and when I said that in the class, they were like, well, no, that that's not racism. I said, that's systemic racism because they and nope. I said there is not a single major highway in this nation that goes through an upper crust you know, very white neighborhood. There's not. Is there a freeway that goes through Beverly Hills? Is there is there a freeway that goes through the Hamptons or to the really nice parts in Chicago? No. Yep. They're always through the hood. They're always through the hood. And when you tell us, and that's not overt racism, that's systemic racism, what they're saying. And the reason people are like, well, that's not really racist is because it's subtle racism. Yep. It, you it, know? It, 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 it's covert. I hope I'm using that word yeah. correctly. Yeah, I think so. Uh, another example is even food deserts, you know, mm-hmm. food deserts, you know, like it, it, I mean, I grew up, you know, I mean, Louisiana is a very poor state, but I never remembered an area, you know, back home having food deserts. And then when I came to um, the Midwest, I started hearing this term and they were like, well, these are areas where people can't get fresh food. There's corner stores, you know, with all this processed stuff. You know, it's usually the corner store is the source of 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 people's food. And I was like, well, well, why, why, why is that? And then they were saying, well, you know, there are, you know, certain policies, you know, where, where, where if if a chain opens up in one area, you know, they're going to get more more perks. They're going to get more tax breaks, even even. um, Well, I mean, even even in like um, certain parts of my home state. Um, if you open up a certain plant, a plant in a certain area, you're going to get like some crazy, crazy tax breaks there. Mm-hmm. And so they're like, so, you know, the, the, the system gives an incentive to stay out of, to keep, you know, businesses that would revitalize these broken communities of color. It gives them incentives to stay out and to go to the white parts of town. And and so, yes, I mean, so, you know, so like with, with, a, with a food desert, it just, you know, it, it's it, it's the result of, of of that right there. Yeah. Another, uh, at least local here for the Twin Cities is we have a light rail system, which is just a mass transit um, that we have that goes from both downtowns um, down to the Mall of America and to the airport. Um, and I'm all for mass transit. It's, you know, it helps the. Um, if people use it, which I know they do because it's or else we would have abandoned it and it's been around for 20 years here in the Twin Cities and we're going to continue to expand it. But my brother and um, my mother actually worked on University Avenue in in um, in St. Paul. And to our listeners who's not familiar with this, you know, 94, like we said, is the main freeway that connects downtown to downtown. But University is the main, I would say, side street mm-hmm. that connects downtown to downtown. Mm-hmm. University used to be well, back in the day where, like, when you had streetcars, um, they would go down there and stuff like that. So, but when they were deciding this, probably in the mid to late 90s, when they were going to do mass transit, you know, a lot of people came up with ideas and and um, ways to to build it. And the one thing I took issue with, even as you know, as they were building it in my late high school years, early college years, was I was like, why did they purposely put it on University Avenue? 
Mm-hmm. Why did they why did they purposely build it in a person of color of people of color neighborhood? And the the thing about St. Paul where that part is is there's so many neighborhoods that you know bump up to you know university because in any major city as you well know Scotty there's neighborhoods. Yep. You know you're like instead of saying I'm from St. Paul people take pride to say I'm from this time and like for me you know, I say I'm from Dayton's Bluff, and there and people are, people in the city is like I know where Dayton's Bluff is. Dayton's Bluff is a neighborhood. Yep. And so in university, you have Frogtown, you have um, Hamlin Midway, you have you know like the West End because that's the West End of St. Paul. Mm-hmm. Then you kind of do the the Dale Air, Dale neighborhood. Then you have like downtown or Capitol Heights, but. There's, I mean, not only are there black people there, there's Somalians. I mean, I know Somalians are black too, but Somalians, there's a heavy Hmong um, population. And yes, there are a lot of whites there. But literally the same thing they did with Rondo is they did on the university is um, they used eminent domain mm-hmm. and they just made the light rail. And, and if anybody knows whether you're doing a highway or a light rail, that wasn't a project that was done in a month or two. Like university was almost shut down and impassable for about two and a half, three years. Yeah, I remember while, that. While they built that. And my mom's company suffered. There was a lot of people's businesses who were people of color whose businesses left. And I heard a lot of people that was on the news back then, you know, people who were black, people who are Asian. And they were like, we have to stop our business because our our clientele our guests can't get here and that is another form of systemic racism because and and i think people don't understand systemic racism as well because like in like you said covertly is because like covertly is just like another thing is like it's secretive it's you know under the radar where people are like well this isn't racist what are you talking about and it's like when you willfully hurting um whether you want to or not another group of people and you're hurting them economically, you're hurting them societally, you're hurting them socio, well, socioeconomic, all that, then that's racism and that's yeah. systemic racism. And I think that's something that our country has never dealt with. They're trying to deal with the overt racism. Like, oh, well, I think most people, except for white supremacists, would be like, oh, yeah, white supremacy is evil, white supremacy is terrible. But then you start talking to them about systemic racism or white privilege and all that stuff. And then people get, you know, whoa, 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 what are you talking about? I'm not like that at all. So I think our problem in America is not the overt racism we have, which there is that problem, but there's the systemic racism and how it creeps into almost every fabric of our society. And we're just not willing to talk about it. I mean, you know, it's interesting you say this because, you know, going back to also the point about just with our history you know, there was, you know, there's an economic aspect to our racism and our racial system is designed to keep a certain segment. It's not even designed to keep all white people on top. It's Mm -hmm. designed to keep a certain segment of whites on top because it's partially based on, um, it's partially, I mean, it's based on how things were in Europe where you had the nobility the elite, mm-hmm. and they were the lords of the manor, and then they had their peasants, and and then slaves, you know, was was an addition on that, because my grandparents explained to me when I when I was a kid, there were you know like even in our black community there were whites, 
even in my family, um, my father's mother is half white. Her her father um, met her father. Uh, yeah, her father um, was white, married a black woman, and 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 um, and you know, and we had a we had in town. Um, you know, the elite whites, white folks, and then this, sorry, you know, if this sounds derogatory, but people call it white trash, poor whites. And my grandmother explained, she said, you know, um, the sharecropping used to be done by white folks um, when slavery was around and when slavery ended so that the elite could, you know, keep, could make a bigger profit. And so they didn't have to pay um, you, you know, uh, uh, um, people who legally were on the equal to them, they um, they hired blacks and disenfranchised the poor whites. And so, you know, um, as this goes on, you know, um, with with our systemic racism, it affects a lot of times poor whites. Poor whites are seen by the main um the main group that's benefiting, they're, they're the expendable folk, you know, and, and this is what helps to keep it covert. They'll say, well, you know, there's a white man who, or white families live in that neighborhood too, low income white families, and they're just as affected, you know, or, um, it, you know, my mother used to, you know, at, at some point she'd be in food lines and there would be lots of white people and, when you'd have that talk about racism, you know, have that talk about how many of the blacks in the line or the black people in the city were disenfranchised folks say, well, Hey, but there are white families in the line too. So our system is, is smarter. It's smart as heck, man. It, it, it adapts and, and, and it makes some white folks expendable as, as, as extra cover. Uh-huh. You know, I mean, it, it's, it's mind-boggling, bro. You know, yeah. That kind of leads us into a good segue of uh, white privilege, and I think that is something obviously that needs to be addressed in this conversation, but let alone it needs to be addressed in America. And I think if anybody, whether in America or around the world, if they're glued to any kind of news television, is seeing all the protests that are happening not just nationwide in America, but worldwide. Like you said, in Switzerland, people, not just a couple people, but thousands of people are protesting. And they're not just protesting for George Floyd. That's the misnomer. They're protesting for all black people, all people of color. And they're they're protesting against the system, systemic racism. Yeah, I keep saying systematic. I'm like, man, I studied theology too long. I know, that's exactly <laughs> like, like I almost I almost said systematic <laughs> because it's so close. Um, a couple of letters different, but I remember, and I'll have to be brutally honest when I was first confronted with the idea and understanding of white privilege was when we were doing our masters together in seminary and I had a professor talk to us. Um, if you remember, um, who Dr. Harden was. Oh yeah. Mark Harden. At, at, yeah. At seminary. Um, and I remember he, I don't know if it was a class or like a convocation or whatever, and he was talking about, I mean, very brilliant man, very educated. Um, and I don't know what, what it was, but I remember him saying, and, and you can attest to this too, Scotty, that, that Bethel was, I don't know, probably like 98% white. Yeah. Um, so you're talking about a lot and mostly suburbanites, mostly rich suburbanites who would go to seminary and even the college. 
and he was talking about white privilege and he was saying even for you being here at this school today listening to me talk in many ways is white privilege or he was saying like because you are here because you have a degree you know all this stuff is white privilege and i remember just getting so infuriated i was getting mad because the way i was receiving it in my head and the way i was processing it was you're pretty much saying that you know my ancestors had slaves and that we lynched people and that we you know raped them that we did all these negative horrendous things and then it, and then i put myself in there as like well, I'm not rich. My parents struggled, you know, you know, they took out mortgages, second mortgages on their homes to put me through college, you know, all the stuff. So I thought it was like the, uh, the attack thing. But then as I've gotten older, I've talked to people like you who were friends, other family and friends who I have that are people of color and then just shutting up, literally just shutting up and hearing the stories of the systemic racism it made me realize that it's not about necessarily economics, which it is has to do with economics, but it's literally every fabric of our society from the justice system and within the prison system, within the education system, within mm -hmm. uh, policing, which we'll talk about in a little bit. It's to with jobs and, and I mean, all of that. And, the more I step back and, and have just realized, you know, is, is how privileged I am. And I mean, I tell people all the time, you know, in small towns, there's a couple times, like my denomination, we have a church conference in a smaller town in Minnesota, in northern Minnesota. And the first, the first time I went through that town, Amanda and I were there and maybe they looked at Amanda because as people know, listeners know, my wife is mixed. She's half white and half Mexican. But I I had two cops actually get in their car as we left a subway hmm. and follow me because of the way I looked. And and then once they saw that we were going to this church conference at a Catholic school, then they probably felt like assholes and were like, what? <laughs> sorry. Oh, but man. to say to, to what I say that that's racism, no, because they were white cops you know, profiling a white person, like, yeah, white people, anybody can be profiled. Profile is part of systemic racism, but when I when it's between the same race, I just think it's someone being an asshole and it has nothing to do with, with that. However, like my wife and I were just talking today where people need to understand white privilege, like, and she had brought up this wonderful point. She was like, my neighbor, Matt and I were pretty close friends. We disagree a lot, but we usually go sit on the porch on a nice Friday, Saturday night when the weather's nice and we'll go have a beer. And sometimes, you know, we're like, hey, let's go walk. There's a couple breweries. Let's go. And it could be like 10 or 11 at night and we'll go get a beer. She's like, you and Matt don't have to worry about going to that brewery and anything happening to you because you're white men. Mm -hmm. You know, she's like. You can put a hoodie on if it gets chilly out. You can, you know, get behind the car. Like if you leave a bar at 11 o'clock, there's a good chance a, a cop might not follow you. She's like, however, if I was black or I was married to a black person, you don't know when you're going to get that phone call that says, hey, your husband was murdered. Your kid was murdered. Why? Well, because of this racist cop pulled them over, you know, yada, yada, yada. And so, and that, and that's what white privilege is. White privilege is the whole concept of 
because you are a white person, you are privileged because society is more for you than against you. You don't have to prove your worth as a race to America. And that is why so many black people around the world are raging because it's like, how many times as a black person do I have to prove myself to you that we're the same and we're equal? And I don't want to be the one talking. I want you to talk. But I mean, that's, I just had to have that self realization in the last number of years to be like, whoa, I need, I need to understand that I have that privilege. And I feel like it's my goal now, especially after this last murder with George Floyd, that white people need to get off the high horse and pedestal and be like, we all have privilege as white people. Yeah. I think that, you know, like white privilege, it has to do with being seen individually or corporately. So, you know, when I was growing up, you know, like I, I, I like to dress nice. You know, part of it is, you know, I dress up a lot, but and, and I mean, because I like to. But the other reason that I do is because as a boy, my grandfather, he taught me about all kinds of dress shoes, you know, um, how you wear, how to wear a suit, um, stuff like that. And he was always pushing being presentable. And always pushing, going the extra mile, and 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 everything, and and it, it pissed me off. I was, you know, and so one day I I, I snapped at him, um, and I was just like, you know, why do you keep saying this? You know, why can't I just dress in a in a normal way? And you know, why why is it always, you know, I like to to dress up, but you're making this unbearable. And then my grandfather explained. He said because when you go out in that world. You know, yes, you're an individual, but you don't just represent yourself. When you go out there, you're representing all of us. You know, he goes, no matter how many friends you get that that see you for you, he's like, there's always going to come a point where um, you're going to have to pay for the sins of of, of another black person or um, you're going to have to, um, how do you put it, set things up, you know, so that another black person doesn't have to pay. And so he, he was like, if one of us does something, we all get blamed for it. We all bear the consequences of it. So when I've, I've met white folk who are afraid of, of black people, for example, who have issues with black folk, um, they will say, well, you know, I had this experience with black people at this point in time, and that's why I'm the way I am. And then I go, so you you will blame all of us. I'm sorry for what happened to you, but you will blame all of us for this bad experience that you have with one or two black folk. And then I'll say, mm-hmm. but I can't. And I've had these repeat repetitive experiences with white people. I can't I can't um, give corporate guilt in, in, in the same way. You know, and, and and so I say that's the essence of white privilege that it's it's being it's that you can be seen as an individual that that, that that your story by itself is recognized and it's heard without critique, without statistics being brought up. You know, despite the mistakes that other white folks have made, you don't have to, it's not having to bear that corporate guilt and and, and walk in the freedom of being an individual Um Versus, you know, for me as a black man, I'm always having to answer for what some other black person did. Even when um when when I met um when I went to um when I met my wife's family, 
her grandmother, sweet lady, but her grandmother um, had um, was afraid of black people, and not because of black people she met in person, but because of she watched crime shows with Nigerian crime bosses who were caught up in some kind of a racket, and and she was you know and, and so she had this this fear. So, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, I got along with her. She was a great lady. But but but, you know, but there I wasn't able to, you know, be an individual in the beginning. I had to come there and sort of prove I'm not like the Nigerian drug dealer that you saw on the Swiss version of Law and Order. Um, or here's a real life example. There's a colleague of mine in in Geneva and he just posted this on Facebook um, sharing his story when he and his wife moved to Switzerland um, from the UK, his wife is from, is actually from, um, from Denmark. Um, well, no, from the Faroe Islands. Uh, yeah, I think it's in Denmark. We're from the Faroe Islands. She's from Scandinavia. When they moved here, it took them a month to find an apartment. They, they felt like they were getting the runaround. And so at one of the, um, visits to get an apartment, um, you know, um, um, the, his wife was pulled aside um, and was told, "We'll leave your husband in the car, and that might double your chances of getting an apartment." Or, or she was told, "Hire or, or hide your husband's papers. Don't let people know your husband is an African." And she's like, "Well, why?" And they said, "Well, because in this area, there's been a lot of African immigrants who've caused trouble, so they're hesitant to get ho- give homes." to or get or to rent out to Africans. And so in order to get an apartment here in Switzerland in enlightened Europe, my colleague had to speak had to have a white pastor um who was at the same church that he he was working at vouch for him so they could get a place to live. And how is that not systemic racism or white privilege? Yeah, exactly. You know, and 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 he explained he said even here in Switzerland where they don't have the history that we have in America um, and the Swiss didn't have colonies. They didn't have slavery even. But even here, there's this form of white privilege where he still has to answer for or pay for the sins of other black people. And, and, and going into, you know, into the, you know, I'll bring this into the theological realm. Here's an expression of white privilege, even um, when you look at it from theolo- theologically, white, white, you know, we're told in the church if 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 you believe in um penal substitution um you know uh, um that Christ had to take the fall for all of us and bear all the sins of humanity we are taught or original sin that's what it is mm-hmm. original sin mm-hmm. better term you know white privilege is that you can be guilty of the sin of adam you know and and you need to be to be saved from that but you're not guilty for the sins of other white folks which have created this system. You need to be forgiven, you know, and for Adam, you need faith to to believe in Adam. You can debate the existence of Adam, you know, but, but, you know, but you're guilty of, of, of that sin. But, but in this real life situation where there's data, where things are on film, where you see it, you, you don't need, um, you don't have to bear that guilt as 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 a white person. 
Yeah. Yeah, and, and and white privilege and systemic racism obviously is not um just constrained to one part of the world is worldwide. It's not just in America, it's in every probably every nation, um in well almost every nation in the world that has predominantly white people living there. And and so like you you were just saying what happened, like you said in your enlightened Switzerland of of that happening. And I've actually heard heard even some other friends of mine who happen to be black where that's happened where they might not have gotten and not just and not just black i don't want it to just say seem like it's only black people this happens it happens to mongs it happens to hispanics all across the board um but specifically what's happened in our nation over the last number of you know hundreds of years is is with you know with black people and you even said over the years you know, it's like, it, 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 slavery is terrible, but you were like, and how they just did it, and how they literally just took these Europeans, went to Africa, and literally almost in a way kidnapped them, and was like, well, you're our property, you're coming with us, you're coming to the, you know, into America, and we're going to put you to work as now, slave also laborers. Also, Africans helped to make that possible because they were selling their own people, you know, so, well, yeah. Yeah, like the movie, like the movie Amistad, how popular that was. Back in like the 90s, and what people don't realize, and I think you and I had a conversation about this years ago, where you see that movie and it's like, you know, the guy who got out of slavery and fought, you know, to get out of slavery and whatever and won his freedom, he actually went back to Africa and became a slave owner. A slave owner. So he went back to Africa as a freed black man and enslaved his fellow black man to make money. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's, it's, I did it, um, you know, there are two two points I'll make. First is I did a twenty three and Me test. Woo, me too. Yeah, and then you know, and then you know, and discovered like, you know, the African DNA that I have. Uh, you know, it is it, it, they couldn't pinpoint which part I was from because I mean, Louisiana um, had the had one and South Carolina as well um, had the highest mixture of African people groups. So. Like my DNA also goes as far as Madagascar. I had ancestors from mm. there, which was crazy to find out. But I shared this with a friend of mine from Ghana because there's a significant amount of DNA from Ghana that I have. And she said, yes, yeah. she goes, there was a point when it was lucrative. You know, the Europeans came and, it, it, and, and their presence and the things they brought, they brought rare things from Europe. It, 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 it boosted the economy in some areas. And so they were like, so it was lucrative to invest in the slave trade. So she's like, so they would just, you know, you'd have, you know, a farmer out in the field and the farmer would disappear. He'd be kidnapped by some young guys who wanted some quick cash and who wanted, who wanted to make some money and who also wanted um, goods from Europe. They kidnapped this guy working on his farm they kidnap people on the streets. They kidnap kids, um, you know, who were at home while their parents were away. Um, and they did it, you, you know. So, so, I mean, so Africans, you know, they took part in that. And, 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 and I acknowledge that because this, you know, I'm sure there's going to be someone who listens to this conversation and who's going to say, you know, well, you're talking about Europeans, but Africans had a hand in it, too. So I'm going to disarm that by acknowledging it. Um, the other thing about privilege, and this is another point, is 
there might be someone who listens to this conversation and goes, yeah, but everybody has privilege in some way. You know, think about it. You in America, you have American privilege. And, and I'll say this, our system of racism, the way that it, it adapts, the way that it, that it keeps going is the way that it dispenses privilege. So even during slavery, um, and even in the black community today, there's colorism, you know, where the lighter you are, and, and like on the plantation, you know, the easier jobs you got, and the darker you were, you know, the hard, the hard, uh, the harder jobs you had. Um, even in the black Creole community where I'm from, um, you had different shades. There's a song that Beyonce sings about red bones and brown bones and yellow bones. These were classifications, you know. Um, and so, you know, when you think about it, like, like our system dispenses privilege. It, it keeps us apart through privilege. It gives, you know, um, certain privileges to poor whites to keep them from allying with other with, with disenfranchised blacks. It gives privileges to certain privileges of black folk that it doesn't give to Hispanic brothers and sisters. You know, it gives certain privileges to Asians, the model minority. Um, so it, it, it keeps us apart through certain degrees of privilege. And, you know, and, and yeah, it's, wow. I, I'm going to stop there. Like, <laughs> Well, yeah, and that's such a... It's such a deep, polarizing um, topic that, I mean, we could probably talk about this for probably like six or seven episodes. But yeah, And we can always come back, come back to that sometime. But um, I just wanted to ask you, too, when you saw some of the pictures coming out of Minneapolis, St. Paul, of the riots, and I would say across the country you've seen – you know, other riot. Well, I'm not going to say all rioting. I would say 90% of it's protesting peacefully and about a 10% of, you know, destruction of property, looting, stuff like that. But when I was texting you, because I was almost giving you in a way a play by play, but when you saw the pictures or videos that have circulated around the globe of, you know, the target in Minneapolis getting looted or, um, the auto zones getting burnt down the, the CVS is, I had a friend of mine who's, um, not close friend, but I grew up with him in the church that I grew up in who his pharmacy got looted and burnt to the ground. Yeah. Um, and it was actually in our old neighborhood. You know, where that pharmacy is, I think you went into that pharmacy. Oh yeah, man. Um, and so that, that is burnt and looted, but I'm left with the picture in my mind and I don't, I don't think I'm ever going to forget it in my life. Where and this was actually they came out in the news and said it. Um, so the I, and I, I don't want to say that they were straight arsonists or or as our our president number forty five. Um, I don't want to say his name calls ever everyone terrorists. Hmm. But in the history of the United States, there's only now now there's only been one precinct, police precinct that's ever been burnt to the ground. Yeah. And that's the Minneapolis third precinct in South Minneapolis. What do you, when you see these pictures, when you hear friends like me and others talking to you about that, how does that make you feel? Not just as a Minnesotan, um, but as a black man. Oh man. Like I will say last week was probably 
it was one of the hardest weeks of my life because, I mean, you and I have been friends for well over a decade. And, and I told Maria, I heard you cry more times last week than in our entire friendship. Not because you're not, you, you're not because you're this stoic guy, you know, but I, t- I told Maria, I said, I've heard, I said, I heard Brian cry more times last week, you know, than, you know, in our over a decade of friendship. And the same thing with, with my friend Trey, um, in St. Paul, um, my friend Andrew in 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 St. St. Louis, um, he you know, it, it 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 for me I'm like this is my home, you know, and and it just you know it it, it was heavy, but as a black man, um, there are two you know two two feelings I had, um, there was you know, of course th- th- there's fear, mm-hmm. um. You know, fear, and then a feeling of 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 caution. I wasn't rejoicing that the police um, precinct was burned down because, you know, I start. You know, there, there was one one point when I said, I, I feel like, you know, that the, these the, the, that this instance is going to be hijacked by people who don't give a damn about the city, who don't know the city, and you started hearing that. Folks was coming from other states, um, mm-hmm. in, you know, just to burn, st- burn, you know, just just to riot, a, aimless anarchist, and then white supremacist. Um, in one of, in 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 a suburban area where my friend lives, they they were going after black families. White supremacists were, were you know, were, were were taking advantage of it. So I was like, I'm not going to rejoice because I, you know I can't rejoice in this. Um. You know, I'm, I'm only, you know, there's going to be fear that there was fear. And, and then, I mean, yeah. And, and, you know, and just, you know, I was concerned because I'm like, I don't think having a police department is bad. You know, um, there are good police out there. Um, you know, I think we need a police department. Um, it's an honorable job when done right. Um, but Minneapolis, and I mean, I knew this um, from my time living there, the police department was corrupt. Mm-hmm. The majority of these cops didn't even live in the city, many of them. And, and, and I remember being, you know, when I, when I was at Morrison Baptist and, and I'd have to do visitations, I would go around the city, you know, when I did visitations on the north side, I'd wear my clerical collar all the freaking time, you know, because... You know, I knew that the police at least respected clergy. And I spoke with um, one of our classmates, Jacqueline um, Frazier, and, and she, she saw me wearing the collar one day. She said, oh, so you put on your uniform when you go out, too. <clears throat> She's like, I have to dress up in my clerical stuff so that I don't get stopped. You know, so, so it's, it's, you know, yet there's a sense of, of fear and fear for the, you know, fear because people are hijacking you know, this, this, the protest hijacking it and, 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 and just breaking stuff and this fear for the future of, of my city, you know, but then, you know, and then there's also just, yeah, caution, you know, that these, these people that are coming in and pushing it to this, this level of burning stuff down, that they will get it to where, you know, there is no police department and there is no, no reform 
of the police department. And then, then what do you have left? You know? Um, yeah. So, but do you, do you, you're all for peaceful protesting though, oh, right? Heck yeah, man. The, the first amendment right to free speech. <laughs> yeah. Um, I don't know if I've told you, but I'll tell our listeners. And I think I have texted you that unfortunately, you know, this happened to, again, to another unarmed black man or woman. Um, and this is the third police Minneapolis murder by a police officer with an unarmed person. This is the second black man. And there was actually, um, a black man that killed a white woman a couple of years ago. Um, but police related. Um, but, and like you had said earlier, that Minneapolis and what people don't know, Minneapolis is to, to us in the Midwest is big. It's about 500,000 people. So average size, big city. But probably for the last 20 to 30 years, if not longer, it's been known as one of the corrupt, most corrupt police departments in the nation. And I'm not trying to say that every single person who is a police officer in Minneapolis or wherever are corrupt. And I, I, I don't want to say that because I agree with you. There are a lot of men and women who are police officers who do their damn best every single day yep. to protect and serve. And this just came out in the paper recently or in the news that in the last 10 years, so, well, eight years since 2012 to 2020, so about eight years, there's been over 2,000 um, criminal complaints against Minneapolis police officers. 2,000, right? Mm-hmm. That's quite a bit. And do you know how many of out of those 2,000 criminal complaints, how many of those officers have been punished or dismissed? Or how many of those cases out of the 2,000 have been dismissed or they've been punished besides a slap on the wrist? How many? 20. Oh, man. And so that is why people are saying, and I'm not saying abolish the police, but what, why people are rioting and protesting on the street is we, we as Americans will look at police officers and these men and women in uniforms and we pretty much are like, yeah, you guys can do anything because you, they're, they're protected by the government. And really in America, we're waking up to the fact is no, the government's not the one that pays your salary. We are. As yep. taxpaying citizens, we're the ones. That, so I'm my tax money in St. Paul is going to pay the police officers in the city I live in. Mm. So if I see a St. Paul police officer beating up an unarmed black man, you better believe I'm going to stand up as a taxpaying citizen of the city and be like, hell to the no, you're not going to do this. And so that's why they want reform. And just to let our listeners know, because not obviously everyone's from the Twin Cities. We have a lot of listeners through other parts of the country, but this is kind of coming from firsthand knowledge from the kind of the starting place of where all of this happened in the last few weeks. But our governor of the state of Minnesota, which I think he's a absolute rock star. His name is um, governor oh, walls. Yeah. He actually, his cabinet, his, his people, the attorney general have actually opened a human rights and civil rights, um, um, investigation into the Minneapolis the Police Department for corruption, for systemic racism for the last 10 years. Yeah. And I've, ne- I've never, ever heard that as any police department doing that. 
Um, they've also, it's unprecedented. They fired f- those four officers. Um, they should have fired them right on the spot, but within two to three days, the, all four of those police officers were fired. And what people don't realize is, guess what? When you're part of the police force, you're part of a union. And when you're pr- proud of a, pop, uh, proud of, uh, pr- I can't say it, part of a union, like I am in my job, it is damn hard for you to get fired. It is. And it's like, and I, and I will say this, like, you know, there, you know, for, for police, you know, they do need those protections, you know, that a union gives because there might be a situation, you know, where they have to take, take a life, you know, uh, quite often this happens, you know, and, and, um, they need coverage, you know, because I mean, there, there's a situation where, where, where they just, um, like, like this happened even, even in Brazil, there was, a, there was this guy, um, he, he, um, he was angry at his, 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 um, girlfriend for leaving him. And so, um, his girlfriend and their daughter were at a school function and the guy rolls up in this crowd with a gun to snatch the little girl. And he was going to shoot the mom. He, he was, is intending to kill her. So the officer came forward and, and shot him, you know, in an instance like that, the officers doing their duty, they need those, they need certain protections. So they're not prosecuted for, because that's a part of the job, but there's the, you know, but when, when you've got that corruption, like in the case of the police departments back at this police department back home, you know, that stuff works in the officer's favor in a very negative way. Yes. You know, because I'm looking yeah. at it like if I if, if you or I were to stand on someone's neck and asphyxiate them the way they did, you wouldn't need a second autopsy. People go, you choke that man to death. And this guy, I mean, in plain logical and 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 just, you know, even, even I was surprised. Our friend here said this. He was surprised that there's even lawyers willing to defend this when it's on film. Mm-hmm. Him killing Brother Floyd, you know. Yeah. And what and what they're trying to say now is because like the official autopsy from HCMC, which is the local Minneapolis hospital, county hospital, they came out and said, yes, he did have underlying like heart condition. He's 46 years old. You're you're bound to have some issues. But then they're like there were trace amounts of um, fentanyl, which obviously is an opioid and, and then meth. But they were like, while meaning that there's a trace amount in him, they were like, but at the time of his death, he wasn't high. He wasn't on drugs. So a cop, but a cop and like the head of the police union of Minneapolis um, is is a racist. He doesn't say he is, but his actions and what he'll say makes him uh, a be that. Um, but what he's trying to do and what he's been, uh, you know, in trouble with for many, many years is we'll try to bring up a criminal past. And he, this is what he tried to do with George Floyd. And he kind of came out and was like, you know, it's not right that he died, but you know, he was he had a criminal past and people are like, it doesn't matter if you had a criminal past, you didn't like, if he was robbing a bank whether it's the person was white, black, you know, polka dotted or yellow or whatever, if they were robbing a bank and they took a gun out and started shooting you and you shot back to protect yourself, I don't think anybody in the world is going to bat an eye 
yeah. and say that you didn't have a right to defend yourself. But when this guy was complying with what the cops were saying and you arrested him, you laid him onto the ground, you put his knee or you, you, you put your knee on the man's neck. And when someone says, I can't breathe, I, I'm losing consciousness, whatever, and you ignore them. That's wrong. That's wrong. It is. And, and, and I feel like in our society, we give, we give police in America, and I don't know what it's like in Switzerland. I don't know what it's like in other countries, but we give people in uniform, especially police officers, way more, um, leniency than almost any other profession in America. And I think it's because we're scared of them. Well, I mean, it, it happens here as well, you know, but what I think it is in the U.S. is like, I mean, so um, my sister-in-law, her ex-boyfriend became a police officer. Um, mm-hmm. And I was, you know, and I, I, you know, saw his entire journey from police academy to, um, to you know, to, to becoming an officer and and the one thing that he that 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 he said is he was like you know the training here in Switzerland you know it's it's much different training he was like you know and and even the equipment that the police officers get in the U.S. you know it, it is it is is vastly different I feel like I could be wrong but our police department is militarized. You know, like some 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 of some of the things they have, you wouldn't see on a Swiss police officer, um, and 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 so it's 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 the training, you know. That's what I'm finding. You know, is what sets out is what is what sets our police apart. You know, of course, there are corrupt police departments all around the world. Oh, for sure. But I think our problem is training, because you mentioned profiling earlier. Swiss police learn to profile as well. You know, profiling is isn't the issue. It's it's how you use it and what's the standard for profiling. So, with um, my sister in law's ex boyfriend, um, he and I had a conversation about it. What's interesting with him is is that um, he's Hispanic actually. <laughs> so, and he became a police officer and and um, and we were discussing um, and we would always have jokes about you know. Um, we, we would joke around about America and Mexico and things like that. Um, but he wanted to have a serious conversation about profiling. And, and so I asked him, I said, well, you know, what's the training like? And he said, the training for Swiss police with profiling is they will bring two people up front. Um, one will, will be a black man. The other might be a blonde haired, blue eyed, you know, white guy. And they'll say, which one is, and they'll have them talk to you walk around the room and they say, okay, which one is Swiss? And the automatic response, most people go, well, the blonde-haired, blue-eyed guy. And they'll say, no, it's actually the black guy is the Swiss guy. Listen to the way that he speaks his German. Um, he speaks German. Look at the way he, look at how he wears his clothes. Look at his, his coffee cup. They will, you know, so they're not profiling based on skin color. They're profiling based on, on other things. And, I mean, I remember... When I got profiled here, it was quite interesting. Um, there was a group of, of Africans, African brothers, and, I, and, and then there was me. We were waiting for, for the um, train. And then along comes a group of police officers, um, Personen Controle, we call it, which is 
people control, person control, and they will check, um, you know, your, your, your documents, your, your, you know, um, your residency permits. Um, so in Switzerland, we all have to carry identification cards on us at all times. That's just the law for everyone. And so they come up to the African guys and they're checking their papers. And then, um, I, I pull out my card and they go, Oh, you're American, aren't you? But what? <laughs> and they were like, yeah, they're like, you're American. They're like, you're wearing white socks. It's like, whoa. And they're like, and you're carrying an Algene bottle. <laughs> and, and they're like, only Americans do that. And I was like, wow. You know, and, and so, so I, but I think it all gets down to, to training. And I sometimes wonder in parts of the U.S., this is another question, you know, a question, you know, you don't have to answer it, but it feels like in Europe, it, it, it's the training, you know, to become a police officer, it, 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 it is much more screening. It, it, it's harder. But in the U.S., it, 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 it's easy. Like in this, it, it, back home, in, in my small town in, in Louisiana, you know, many of our police are like Barney Fife. You know, from Andy Griffith show, you know, like you get pulled over and there's a guy with, with a bull on his car, like, you know, mm-hmm. and, and you're like, you know, there's no way this guy should be a police officer. But in our right. small town, it's easy for him for him to do it. And yeah, while we were just talking um, within the last like five minutes, I get push notifications on my phone um, in Minneapolis, just the police department. Minneapolis Police Department just banned any kind of chokehold or like knee bending on the back of someone's neck as a as a like procedure that they do. They banned it, and they say that it's a fireball offense if you use um, unauthorized unauthorized use of force. Yeah, and also this is unprecedented as well. But within the last week. So I would say from Sunday to now to we're talking on a Friday, the Minneapolis, the police department, they don't just protect Minneapolis. They are also contracted out to help other events, other organizations throughout the city of Minneapolis. Um, the U of M, University of Minnesota, which our main campus is in uh, Minneapolis, the U of M terminated their contract with them. Um, the Minneapolis public schools terminated their contract with them. Good. And the Minneapolis uh, park board terminated their contract with them. And this, when I tell people, and that's unprecedented for that to happen, but I tell people, this is why you're seeing protests happen all over the country in America is because it's not just white. It's not just black people that are fighting for change. I think it's the younger generation in itself no matter what what a what race you are or gender, I think it's and I and I said this to my wife earlier. I think this is our generation's um, civil rights movement. Oh yeah. And I'm not gonna and I'm not gonna equate it that it's the same in any way because it's what like 50 years apart. But I said this is why I am watching the news as much as I am. This is why I and my wife personally are going out protesting because this is our civil rights movement. And it was kind of just thrust upon us in the last, you know, couple of weeks. And I am saddened and I am hurt 
and I have all these emotions that it happened in my own town, like our own town, you know, yeah. Minneapolis and St. Paul. Um, I'm saddened, but I'm also emboldened because usually where like the epicenter of where something is, is usually the place where then it starts to reform the first before anywhere else. Exactly. And, and so, and I was talking to one of my coworkers at work and I was like, well, why do you have, you know, people still protesting in New York and whatever? I said, you know, I'm fine that they are. I'm all for it and I support them and, you know, be people being violent. And he was like, well, we had three to five days ahead of them, you know, like people didn't really start protesting until this past weekend where we started protesting the week before after George Floyd was murdered in Minneapolis. And I said, I think that's part of it, but I do want to say the one thing I love about being a Midwestern boy and what I love about Minnesota is we're a very progressive state. And when we see bullshit, we call bullshit out. And you know that from being a Minnesotan a long time there like, and I feel like the younger generation, we're the one that are like saying, Hey, no, this is some bullshit. We're going to call it out and we're not going to remain silent until you change. And I think that's why people are still protesting across the board in this country is we're like, we're not going to stop. And, and mind you, we're protesting in the mid of a global pandemic. Yeah. So we know not only is that, not only is that badass that we're doing that, but we're like, my, my fellow black human being, my friend, my lover, my kid who is black is more important to me and their rights are more important to me and fighting for them is more important than a potentially fatal virus. And that's huge. That's huge. Exactly, man. I'm going to bring something up, you know, um, for those who listen in the second collective, some of us kind of um, are considering giving Brian the title prophet um, because in seminary, when we were discussing, you know, this, you know, like we were taking a class, theology and film, and we watched and um, V for Vendetta. And we were talking about, you know, chaos in, in the U.S. And you said that the U.S. has um, chaos with multiple um, bubbles in it. And you were like, and it's, and, um, one of these bubbles is going to burst. And you said, and you said, it's, and you were like, it's like V for Vendetta. You were like, um, with all this chaos looming around us, because at that time, it was, it was the credit crisis, I believe. The recession was coming uh-huh, up. Uh-huh. You said, with all, with all this chaos going on, you're like, someone is going to do something stupid. And it's going to set everything off. And, you know, and like, and what I feel, you know, as much, you know, and as much as it breaks my heart, you know, that we lost Brother Floyd, that he had to die. What what really sucks about this whole thing is um, that I'm sorry, as much as it breaks my heart that he had that, that he that he's that he's gone. Um, The positive that's come out of it, and I'm not, you know, adding this redemptive element to his death. You know, because some people try to say, oh, well, he's like Christ. He took the fall and thought of us above all. No. But the good that's come out of this this tragedy is that this is a catalyst for that that change, I believe. Because it's making us face, you know, our 
our issue head on. It's making us face the the racism. It's making us talk. It's gotten the world up in arms. The, you know, the world is saying Black Lives mm-hmm. Matter. You know, like, um, and as you mm-hmm. mentioned, you know, what's what's you know, like, what's been the driving force for me um, to do what I've done, to do the interviews I've done, to arrange this solidarity circle that we're gonna have Hello. tomorrow, is looking at my son. You know, um, a black boy, and thinking. I don't want his future to be like my my past. You know, I don't, I know he's going to face racism. I know he's going to face discrimination. He's going to face hate. This is um it these things are always going to exist. But I don't want him to know the America that I knew, you know, th- those certain things I knew in America growing up. I want if we return to the states or if my son moves back to moves to the states, one uh, returns to the states himself one day. I want him to go back to a different America where there's more equity and where um, the civil rights movement just isn't another chapter, but 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 things ha- have really changed. Yeah. So yeah, um, we've been almost going an hour and a half, and I want to for the sake of our listeners, we could talk for hours. Definitely, man. So we should wrap up, but. I want to say, um, would you come back in like a week or two and we can continue this conversation? No, definitely. I, I would love to continue this conversation. Yeah. Um, we might have to, you know, another thing is key, you know, and also I can give you a report on, you know, things here, how the solidarity circle goes tomorrow. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. If you could keep us in prayer because, you know, uh, or, and, or send up good thoughts um, for us because, like it's limit, you know, like it's limited to only 40 people, but there's so many people here who want to talk about it and especially young people. And so I'm wondering if we, you know, if we'll have to do another solidarity circle, um, if too many people show up and they can't, they can't take part tomorrow, um, if we have to do a second one. So just keep us in prayer, um, tomorrow, the whole goal of this is the, the title of it is let's talk about race. And so I want to get people together and teach them how to talk about race and how to stand in solidarity with people who suffer from racism and injustice, you know, and, and discrimination and all those 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 ills. So, yeah. The last question. Usually, you know, what we kind of do here. We do recommendations. Yeah. I think for a recommendation, we can both give like two. Um, give our listeners if they want to learn more about race, white privilege, how to be an ally, whatever, what what two things would you recommend, whether that's a book, musician, a speech, whatever, um, just off the top of your head that someone could really kind of glean a lot of information from? I would recommend that you read Dr. Cornell West's book, Race Matters. Mm-hmm. Um, because there he really, he talks about like, why race matters. Um, so, so Cornell West book race matters, um, is one thing. Another thing that I would recommend is like now is a time, yes, for speaking out, but it's also time for listening. Listen to the stories of, especially of people of color, of those who, who suffered, you know, from the ill, from these ills we, we've, we've discussed. Listen to their stories um, with empathy, without commentary, 
um, without bringing playing devil's advocate, without um, bringing in statistics, just listen to their stories um, because this is trauma. You know, um, r- racism breeds trauma and, and, and these riots and, and all this crying out in pain is um, it, it's an expression of this trauma that, that folks have been through um, in regard to, in regards to race. So, you know, listen without the commentary, listen without playing devil's advocate, listen to this as, as, as um, have a listening ear as you would for any other kind of trauma. And, and, and then you, 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 you will really learn something. You'll really see a different dimension. So race matters by Cornell West. It's the first resource. And then listen to the stories of people of color, listen to the stories of trauma that they have without commentary. Um, so that would be my recommendation. Fantastic. Um, one of my recommendations would be, um, the autobiography, um, on James Baldwin. Oh yeah, definitely. Um, I, I, and I've known who James Baldwin is for a long time. And there's actually a Facebook friend of mine who's a professor down South who is writing about race, you know, race and culture, race and film, race and the arts. And he has written a lot of books and I Facebooked him. I don't really know the guy and said, Hey, what would be a good starting point? Just getting into James Baldwin. And he said his biography and the biography was written in, the mid nineties, but it was written by one of his really close friends. And it literally goes from like when he was a little boy all the way until when he died. And he died, I think in the late eighties, mm-hmm. but not only is it a black man who's, you know, lived, you know, through world war two, he lived through the depression. Um, he's not only a black man, but he's an openly gay black man, mm-hmm. um, living, you know, in such a racist America, um, and then just dealing with all that. And so he, I mean, he was a prophet. He yeah. was a prophet. And I'll be specifically framed to people. To be a prophet, you don't have to be a Christian, religious. You just have to be willing to call truth to power yeah. and be willing to speak truth to when people need to hear it. Um, so that, that is one recommendation. And the another recommendation was one I just found out today. My sister-in-law, Natalie, who's also um, black, she, I told her we were going to record this and she's super, so she's super excited to listen to it. But she sent me like, you really need to listen to this song. And it's by the rapper called Dax or D-A-X. Um, so type that in YouTube, everyone, D-A-X. And the song is called Dear God. And there's some, there's some explicit language but um, it's an all-out, like, verbal, it's just, it's theology, the whole song, because, I mean, he's talking about race, he's talking about religion, he's talking about politics, and just asking, like, God, where are you? I, you know, I cry out to, to you, but you speak shit into my life. You know, just things like that, just visceral, and I think it's a very poignant um it's like a lament. It's a lament in rap form. Yeah, it is. And I don't know if you know that song, but it's absolutely incredible. Yeah, I do. Um, another resource speaking of that, um, because one of the things, you know, that like during these times that folk love to do that really um, stifles the discussion about race is 
we love to quote Dr. King and we love mm-hmm. to quote the sanitized version. This is another thing that our, our racial system does. It sanitizes prophets, you know, um, with a weird form of sainthood. And, you know, and it, it domesticates prophets. So we hear that I have a dream speech and we hear, you know, um, about, you know, all the messages about love and, 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 and nonviolence, but we don't hear the revolutionary voice of King. And we also don't hear Malcolm X either. Mm. You know, Malcolm X is, 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 is denigrated by our system. He, he's the bad up the bad Negro, the violent Negro. So, um, I would recommend reading James Cone's book, Martin and Malcolm. James Cone is a liberation theologian, and he writes about their perspectives and gives them justice and shows that King just wasn't this peace-loving Gandhi, wasn't a black Gandhi, and Malcolm X wasn't just a a violent, angry Negro, Um, that these were both revolutionary prophets with their own unique perspectives um, that our country needs to heed and hear. So, yeah. Fantastic. To our listeners, thank you for listening for this last hour and a half. It's been really eye-opening, I think, for both of us in some ways and, you know, coming together. And I want you to know not only as a best friend, but, you know, I'm I'm an ally for you. Um, I'm an ally for anyone because white people don't understand um, what it's like to be black. White people don't understand um, what people as yourself have to go through um, every day and the privileges we have. So uh, not only thank you for being my best bud, but thank you for just always taking the time to have these important conversations yeah. um, and just being open and honest with it. Thank you so much. And, um, you know, for, for the opportunity to just, you know, discuss this because like, you know, the temptation for those of us in Europe is to just sit back and like, you know, look at America and go, oh, well, thank God we're safe here, you know. But, uh, you know, but it's like we also have to do something. We also have to speak and we have to encourage y'all who are at the forefront back home. I, I want to thank you for yeah, being an ally and um, also for just being my son. Um, most most people don't know, um, but you're my son's godfather. You know, and um, and it's great that, you know, he will have he has your example to look up to. And um, so thank you for what you're doing, man. You know, and just for your listening ear, your compassion, your empathy um, and your encouragement, man. We love you. Love you, too, man. Much love. We'll talk to you later. Definitely, man. All right. Bye. Peace. Bye. Thanks for being part of our conversation. To continue the conversation, find us on social media at SacredMN. If you like that, you might enjoy the Loosen the Bible Belt podcast with Jay Baker and me, Kristen Becker. You know, I'm living in a very privileged position right now. I just have to stay inside. That's all I have to do is I have to stay inside you know, and worry about the rest, you know, am I going to run out of money eventually? Yes, of course. But like for the next couple of weeks, I'm good. So like, let's just fucking figure it out. Um, and then there's other people who 
you know, are at their own different places. And I feel like the tension online in this fake world we made in the sky feels so real. And I've been trying to figure out it's not because we all hate each other. I know that <laughs> it's it's not because of that. So but I think it's really about like we're all in such remarkably different positions. Some of it is class based, but some of it is also just the reality of the circumstances. And some of it's about how many cases you have in your area. And like, anyway, I just wanted to say that <laughs> thank you <laughs> thank you for coming to my ted talk <laughs> that was a post-christian podcast <laughs>